And if you wouldn't mind standing for the reading of God's word. Today we're looking at verses 31 through verse 39. Verse 31, you can follow along silently in your Bible with me as I read aloud. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of God, I'm sorry, from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for another opportunity to gaze upon your beautiful word. I need your help, Lord, by your spirit to put the focus directly upon you and your son and what you're doing and have done. So I ask for your aid and mercy. I pray for your people, Lord, um, that you would bring salvation and comfort to them and assurance in light of what Paul was communicating in this last chapter of our Bibles uh, of Romans chapter 8. Give us clarity. Would you be with us now for your glory and honor and for our good? In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. During my undergraduate years, uh, a friend of mine introduced uh, me to her sister who introduced me to her friend. And her sister's friend and I became an item for some time. And in return for that relationship, I then introduced the sister to a friend of mine. And for a while, that went on. But after some months, that relationship dissolved. Uh, It wasn't long after that, I guess some weeks or a month or so later, I received a letter in the mail. It was quite lengthy, several pages in length. In this letter, uh, the sister's friend that I had been an item with wrote me to share uh, some accusations of my treachery of which I was unaware of and how detestable I had acted, of which I was also unaware of. And so in seeking to preserve the relationship, I sought to try to reach out to reason with her uh, to address the accusations uh, about my treachery. Unfortunately, there was no reasoning or resolving the matter because these accusations had been presented by a trusted source who remained anonymous. And so as a result of that, the relationship was abruptly ended. Now, I consider in retrospect that this was a mercy from God because years later I would go on to meet my wife and marry her. But at the time, it did not feel like a mercy. It felt like something totally other and different. But what that scenario taught me, along with some other things that happened in my life, is that relationships don't always last. And when we enter relationships, we're not sure whether or not this relationship, at some point, for some reason or another, unbeknownst to us, will come to an end. 
And it's that issue in relationships that Paul seeks to tackle in these verses here at the end of Romans 8, but not in context to other humans, but in our relationship with God. We might say it, or some have said, that this is probably one of the most comforting texts for believers in Jesus Christ in the entirety of Scripture. As Paul seeks to inform believers and let them know about assurances that they possess because of what God has done in Christ Jesus. And although we are separated by time and culture and language, and although, although Paul was initially addressing different believers in the city of Rome, what he said to them still holds true for us today. And so I want to jump right into the text. Paul is going to summarize all that he said up to this point in four words. God is for us. God is for us. Now, this is extremely encouraging when you consider the alternative situation. God is against us. And who would want that state of affairs? And so Paul, in a series of questions and answers, is going to explain what he means by these four simple words. And in doing that, he's going to circle back around to what he's already brought up at the beginning of chapter 5 in verses 1 through 11 that we talked about last year. He raises this topic of the love of God, which he's not brought up in the letter up until this point at any other place. And this functions as if uh, it is another bookend to this section of which he's addressing. So let's go back to verse 31 and read it one more time as we start our working our way through this passage. Paul writes in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We first begin in our Bible study by asking the question, what are the these things that Paul is referring to as he points backward to something he's already written? Well, scholars are divided here onto what he's actually pursuing or talking about. There are those who are in the camp who believe that he's simply pointing back to what he's been discussing in chapter 8. Those will be the topics of the fact that believers have this radical new state of affairs in their being because of the presence of God's spirit. And in light of that, because of God's spirit, there is this uh, surety, as in the words of Lenora Tisdale, of recreation and future redemption of our mortal bodies. Others see Paul pointing back beyond chapter 8, all the way to chapter 5, seeing that this is a bookend to that section in Paul's letter. And if that is the case, then, then Paul has in mind other additional concepts that we've covered, such as that we have peace with God now through Jesus Christ. We have promised salvation from God's wrath by the resurrected Jesus. We've been incorporated into this new humanity under Christ, and we have freedom from sin and the law. And lastly, there are others who see this as pointing back all the way to chapter 1, verse 16, in which it would also encompass the idea that God has gifted to both Jews and Gentiles a righteousness, his righteousness, because of faith in his son, just like he had done for Abraham. Now, whichever position you decide is best and best fits this text, whether that's chapter 8, chapter 5, or chapter 1, Whatever Paul is saying is summed up in those four words. God is for us. But Paul doesn't stop there. He goes on immediately to infer what this means for believers because suffering, as Paul has already addressed and which Mike Bongo talked about in the previous week, about two weeks ago, as he talked about present suffering in light of future glory, suffering implies that opposition is present. And so Paul says, who can be against us? And the idea here that Paul has in mind is that there are members of the opposite team who've lined up on the other side of the veil to prevent us from reaching this end zone of recreation and redemption of our mortal bodies. But Paul wants to know, although there's opposition on the other side of the field, who's actually going to be able to be successful in hindering us 
from reaching the end zone in light of the fact that God is for us and God has taken up residence on the field. Paul's implied answer is no one or nothing. And the question then is, why is Paul coming to that conclusion? Well, Paul is writing under the assumption that the believers then understood and we now should understand that the God of Abraham is greater than anyone or anything. Simply consider God as he is revealed in the Hebrew Bible. He existed from Genesis chapter 1 before the heavens and the earth. How do we know that? Because he's the one who created the heavens and the earth. And then he ordered them simply by his words. As we read in the first few chapters of the Bible, as people let us know about who God is, they say to us that God is an everlasting God. He commands the heavenly hosts. Not only does he command them, but he judges the heavenly hosts, the world, nations, and even individuals. He destroys human armies by dispatching his heavenly host at his command to deal with them. He raises the dead. He deposes kings and raises up others, and he's all-powerful. Nothing is too difficult for him. And so the king of Babylon, after having an encounter with God, realized this, and this is what he said about God after his exile. At the end of the days, at the end of day of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All of the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And so Paul says the God of both heaven and earth is for us, and here in light of what he's already written, that us is, is this or are the saints. And since God is for us, Paul says and wants saints to feel this sense of assurance about two particular matters that he's going to raise and address uh, in the following verses. So last month, uh, which would have been December, I received him in the mail um, an offer from one of our utility companies. Uh, to take out some insurance on our lines that run from the house to the street connections. Now, this was of interest to me because at our um, homeowners association meeting uh, that last November, they reminded us that, hey, if anything fails in the lines between your house and the street, this will be your responsibility. And if any of you have ever had to work on any of those uh, lines that service your home, you know that that can get really expensive really quickly. And so I called uh, the company who's holding my homeowner's policy, and we had a nice, pleasant discussion at the beginning of this month. And, and after our conversation, I reasoned that it would be wise in light of the factors, all the factors entail, to take out this insurance uh, in light of the uncertainty of the future, because insurance helps us mitigate risk. And I'm sure for you, you have felt the same way you, when you've taken out insurance because you, like I, stand from a human vantage point when it looks at the future, when we're vision, envisioning the future and thinking about it, we're not really certain about how things are going to unfold in human history. And so we take out insurance to sure up ourselves against the unknown future that might turn against us. And this has always been the case for humans, that the future has always been uncertain ever since Adam and Eve walked out of the garden. And so the future has remained uncertain. And, and it's this basis of premise from which Paul, who knows this, begins to work and to deal with this issue of our relationship with God. And so he wants to reassure the Romans and by them us that our future with God is secure. And since God is for us, that lets us know that our future can remain secure. And so our emotions, we can ground them in the reality of who God is and what he's done, even though we don't exactly know about how the future might unfold. 
But there are some things about the future that are certain in light of who God is. Paul is going to raise this and address two matters here in verses 32 through 34. So let me read those verses again, and then I'll explain what Paul is doing here or saying. So verse 32, let's look back at that verse. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So Paul is going to address two topics in talking about the future. One is our future inheritance, and the second is our legal status. Future inheritance and legal status as it deals with the future. So first, let's look at him talking about this idea of future inheritance, which he addresses in verse 32. Paul first takes us back to the concrete expression of God's love, which he's already written about in chapter 5. Let me remind you what he said in chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And so Paul is going to reason from that act by God the Father that that becomes the grounds by which we have assurance of our inheritance because of this sacrificial act on the behalf of God the Father. He says in the text, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Here, Dr. Moo says something interesting. He says, calling Christ God's own son distinguishes him from those many adopted sons that have come into God's family by faith, which he talked about us in that sense, being part of God's children back in chapter 8, verses 14 through 16. But Jesus is distinct from all of us who've come into God's family by faith. He's God's one unique son. John the apostle raises this in John 3:16 that he is a one of a kind son of God. And Paul says this one of a kind son that God has he did not spare him. Now, a variety of scholars see here that there is probably an allusion to Genesis chapter 22. There in Genesis chapter 22, you remember this is when Abraham is at the end of his life, nearing the end of his life or his latter days of his life, in which God tests his faith with the potential sacrifice of Isaac. And when Abraham shows his intent to be fully obedient to God by binding his son on the altar and by raising the knife, God then intervenes in, a, in that moment to stop him from sacrificing Isaac. Isaac is spared from being sacrificed, and in, 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 in his place, there's a ram in which Abraham and Isaac sacrifice in the place to God. And Paul says, different than Abraham and Isaac's situation, God doesn't spare or did not spare his own son. That was interesting for me when I recalled Jesus' prayer on the Mount of Olives. Let me rehearse it for you, read it back to you to hear what's going on in Jesus' uh, mind and his emotions as he faces what seems to be what God has for him. Listen to what the text says. And he withdrew from them about a stone, stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup. From me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, we do not possess in any of the gospel accounts a verbal response from God. What we only have is the events of Jesus' life. And from that, we have to conclude that in light of the way his life worked out, it was the Father's will that he suffer and die so that he could carry our sins away. God did not spare his son. And it's with these things in mind that Paul makes this comparison, which I'll get to in a moment, 
But this comparison that Paul raises is based on the assumption that we recognize how much love God has for his unique son, Jesus. So in the gospel accounts, we find some statements that relate what, how the father feels about or is endeared towards the son. We see once at his baptism and then again at the transfiguration where the father says something similar. Let me take you back to the transfiguration account in which God speaks about his son. And this is what he says. That is, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said this. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus also goes on to give us these indications about how the father feels about the son in two specific statements in John's gospel, one in chapter 3 and one chapter 5. In chapter 3, Jesus says this. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. His hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. God loves the son so much that he's willing to allow all human destinies to be determined by how one relates or does not relate to the son. Jesus goes on later to say this, for the father loves the son and shows him all that he, had, that he himself is doing and greater works than these will he show to him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. That, the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from, passed from death to life. So just in case you might be wondering about how the father feels about the son, God loves Jesus immensely. And so here's the comparison Paul makes with that truth in mind. Thus, it was not an easy thing for God to give up his son for us. And so Paul reasons that if God has already done this harder thing, that in loving us, he gave up the son that he immensely loves, how will he not do the easier thing in giving us everything else with the son? God has already done that was most, which was most difficult for him. The rest is easy. And so as a result, our inheritance in the future is Secure. Glorified body and new creation have shipped. Now, what is included in these all things with Jesus package? As I said before, with scholars, there are various views. Some see this as referring to all the things that you and I need as believers to reach final salvation. That may be the case. The view that I am most partial to and I think is most probable, uh, I'll give you within the words of Dr. Bird as others have stated this same position. He put it this way. Paul does not explicitly state the scope of all things that are graciously bestowed upon believers. However, the with him, that is Christ, clues us into thinking that he has in mind the inheritance and glory that believers share with Christ as he lays out in Romans 8:17. Let me remind you of what Romans 8:17 said since we read that 2 weeks ago. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Jesus is going to share his inheritance with us. But that's not the only thing that Paul raises in his text about the future. There's more here that he raises. Secondly, he addresses our future legal status. So some years ago, I had the privilege to sit in the courtroom to support a friend. And this friend was in a dire straits. And as I was sitting there in the courtroom, I had a chance to listen to the hearing and watch the proceedings happen as uh, this friend of mine had someone who was accusing them of doing certain things. And so the judge uh, gave room for the person, the accuser, to vent, state 
all of the accusations in the courtroom. And, and there was a soberness that came over me as I listened to the accusations that were being made because I realized if these accusations were upheld and if in court and in trial this came up and it was stated that these were an accurate representation of reality and a guilty verdict was given, my friend's life would be changed utterly by the judge as he changed his legal status from free to now in prison. See, a legal status change would mean a change for his life and future. And this is the worry that Paul is going to address as he looks towards the final day of judgment. He's concerned that believers might be concerned that someone might come between now and then or on the final day of judgment, raise an accusation against believers that would change our legal status before God. And if that were the case, this would be a dreadful turn of events for believers because a legal status would mean a change in our eternal destiny. And if our legal status were to change, we would have to say goodbye God's presence in the new heavens and, and earth and say hello to the lake of fire and the second death. But considering the good news that Paul has already detailed in the preceding chapters, he asked this question, who is able to successfully bring a charge against God's elect? Now, we might consider a couple of options here. First of all, what about Satan, the accuser? We, we seem to like to provide him evidence, even as Christians, of why we could be accused because we still go on at times battling and struggling with sin, which could be raised against us on the last day. But my mind is drawn back to the Zechariah chapter 3 and the unfolding of events there in this vision for the prophet that gives a picture to how things might look for us. Notice what the text says. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy, filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy, filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken away your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. See, Satan and no one else who would be underneath Satan can overturn God's decision to save his chosen. So then the only other option becomes God himself. Will God accuse? Well, Paul has been laying out that God has been working in human history, ultimately culminating in the life of Jesus Christ, to declare his chosen people as righteous, to be able to say that we're not guilty. So God, in a sense, as he does here with Joshua, he removed our filthy garments, which uh, pictures here our iniquity and has given to us pure vestments. There is uh, his righteousness. And so if God has worked in that direction to do that, in no way is God then going to accuse believers. So Paul then asked the question, who then is to condemn? Well, the only one with the authority to condemn believers is God. And the ground upon which God would condemn believers is sin, but that is what God has already addressed by the one doing the judging, Jesus. Jesus, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, died for our sins. And as he said earlier in the letter, so all charges have been addressed and all charges against us or drop. As Dr. Bird puts it, nothing can undo his sacrifice or reinstate the death sentence we once faced. But Paul goes on to say not only did Jesus die, but he was also raised from the dead and now lives forevermore. And more so, not only does he live, but he ascended into heaven to take the place of honor on God's right hand. And there he's presently doing a job Paul tells us that he's serving as our high priest and he's doing this ministry of intercession for us on our behalf. And it's because of this ongoing ministry of Jesus as our high priest that we can have confidence 
that as we make our way through life and still deal with these battles of sin, that they won't hamper us or hinder us or cause God to change his mind in the future. Listen to how Paul, I mean, sorry, the Apostle John deals with this in his letter. Notice what he says. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you, so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So Christ has dealt with our sin, and though we might battle sin in this life until the final day of judgment, that is also dealt with by Jesus, who is our heavenly advocate. And so as a result of what Jesus has done in his present ministry, believers can rest assured that on the final day of judgment, they will hear the same declaration that was made when you were justified. As Paul said at the beginning of Romans chapter 8, there, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. To sum it up, our future inheritance, our legal status are secure and they cannot be threatened. And likewise, Paul goes on in the last part of this uh, section to say our relationship with God is secure in the present. And that's what he's going to lay out at the final verses of chapter 8. So let's return to the text and pick up these final few verses of chapter 8. There we read the words, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Since God is for us, as Paul is summed up, then he says our relationship with God is secure. Now notice he starts this section off with another question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, on the fact that Paul has already in the prior verses been talking about, because the question becomes, which kind of love does Paul have in mind here? So in the previous verses, he's been talking about God's love toward us and Christ's love toward us. In light of the fact that Paul has been already speaking in that way, when he raises this idea of Christ's love, we must conclude that ultimately he's talking about Christ's love toward us and not our love toward him. So if I were to put the question a different way, it would be like this. Who or what will stop Christ? From loving us. And the first candidate that Paul considers that might be a potential threat is suffering. Now, before Mike talked about this, Mike B talked about this, and he talked about suffering in these generic kind of terms, but he gets real specific here in this area or this part or this portion of the text. And he talks about a range of things, things that are like mental, emotional, and social and economic adversity, things like oppressive conditions, things like lack of proper food or clothing, hostile people or harmful situations that we might find ourselves in. And he even raises the idea of potential death. And he says, can suffering, these things I've just named, separate us from the love of Christ? Now, if you've ever been in suffering before, you know that suffering and intense suffering can play tricks on your mind. It can cause you to believe that God's disposition toward you has turned. So in my personal Bible reading right now, I'm working back through the book of Job. You remember Job's story. Job was this man who was a devout follower of the Lord. And some events unfolded in Job's life in which uh, what resulted for him in the loss of all of his wealth, the death of all 10 of his children, and the loss of his health. And Job only has human experience to deal with, to view what's happening to his circumstances. Unlike the readers of the book of Job, he's not privy to 
uh, the, the, the divine counsels of God in which we are told about what's really going on behind the curtain of reality in the heavenly realms by which it, 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 it seems to govern our reading. Job doesn't have any of that. And so Job, although he does not sin, he begins, as the grief begins to take hold of him, began to question whether or not God has changed in how he feels about Job. And so Job begins to grapple with God has afflicted him and come against him. Because the suffering has a way of changing how we, how we might think that God feels about us. Because suffering, especially when it's intense, can make us feel like God has condemned us. But Paul wants to reassure those who are believers in Jesus Christ that suffering has not changed God's love for them or for us. Paul begins by starting out by reasoning from Old Testament understanding. He quotes from Psalm 44:22, a psalm that we might not necessarily feel we want to include in our lives. But Paul draws upon this to set precedent to say to the believers then, listen, suffering has always been part of the story of God's elect people. And being chosen by God does not exempt one from suffering, nor does it indicate that God has changed his affection for his people. And so Paul goes on to say, in light of that, he makes this audacious claim. He goes on to say, we are actually more than just conquerors. Or here, as he puts it, we are super conquerors in all these things that we might suffer in this, length, in this life. And the language almost, to me, sounds very familiar to what we see in the book of the Revelation, in which they overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They suffer, but in the suffering, they're overcoming. But the question for me, and maybe perhaps for you, is how can I be a super conqueror when I'm suffering, and suffering makes me feel like I've just been defeated? Listen to how, how Paul, I mean, Dr. Bird indicates what Paul is doing here, and I'll draw upon his wisdom once again. He says, all things work together for good, not by avoiding hardships, but by God guiding all things to accomplish his purposes. Since nothing can separate us from the love of God, and since no one can make an accusation stick against one of God's elect, the short term doesn't in the end matter. We may suffer, be imprisoned, or even kill, but the God who was faithful enough to send his only son will remain committed to finishing the job. Present battles indicate nothing about the overall war. God has already won. It is simply a matter of faithfully following him as he does what he promised, working all things together for good according to his larger plan. So when you feel tempted to be anxious about your status with God, instead remember the bigger picture. Now it's at this point we might want to dismiss Paul and what he said to this point about suffering, especially if we're in that place in our lives right now. But I would say to you, remember who's writing these words about suffering and God. This is not someone who's writing from a novice perspective. Paul is writing after some 20 years of ministry and serving Christ, and he recounts for the Corinthians some of the things that happened in his life. Let me share those with you so that you can know that Paul is well acquainted with suffering. He said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one or less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I have spent in the deep water. I have been on journeys many times in dangers from rivers, in dangers from robbers, in dangers from my own people, in dangers from the Gentiles, in dangers in the city, in dangers in the wilderness, in dangers at sea, in dangers because of false brothers with toil and hardship, often in sleepless nights with hunger and thirst, often going hungry and cold and poorly clothed. And apart from these external things, there is the pressure on me every day of the anxiety about all the churches. 
See, Paul is writing from a place of someone who knows suffering intimately. But not only does he know suffering intimately, but he knows God intimately. Realize who's writing here. He's not just any believer. This is an apostle who was directly called by Jesus Christ. And he got his gospel, as he says at the beginning of Galatians, from Jesus himself, not from a man. He's qualified to talk about these things. But Paul goes on to consider some other potential threats to our relationship with God. He he lists a host of things, things like angels and perhaps future events and a whole host of other things. But Paul says, in light of his experience with God and all that he's gone through in life, in his relationship with God, despite all that he suffered, he said he's come to this conclusion after years of experience that nothing, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which which is in Christ Jesus. Paul wants you to know, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your relationship with God is secure because God's love is consistent and God's not in the business of changing. Now, naturally, this bids us ask, Am I among the elect of God? Am I among the elect of God? Michael McKinley in his book, Am I Really a Christian, summarizes after reviewing the entirety of New Testament, five categorical characteristics or characteristics of what he says is true of every believer to point whether or not you are in the elect. So let me give those to you. He says, first of all, a Christian trusts in Jesus as he is revealed in the Bible. A Christian grows in hatred for sin and does not make it a practice in his or her life. A Christian keeps faith in Jesus and does not commit apostasy. A Christian loves other people, especially other children in God's family, we would say other believers. And lastly, a Christian values the things of God more than the things of this world. Now, he goes on to add, if you were to begin to evaluate your own life, he gives a word of caution here, and he says the best way to do that is not in isolation, but then within the context of a faithful local church about where you are. Now, I would add to this the words of the apostle Peter in dealing with this very issue. And listen to what Peter, as an apostle, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says to believers about being among God's elect. And for this same reason, and by applying all diligence, supply with your faith excellence of character. And with excellence of character, knowledge. And with knowledge, self-control. And with self-control, patient endurance. And with patient endurance godliness and with godliness brotherly love and with brotherly love love for if these things are yours and are increasing this does not make you useless or unproductive in the knowledge of our lord jesus christ for the one for whom these things are not present is blind being nearsighted having forgotten the cleansing of his former sins Therefore, brothers, be zealous even more to make your calling and election sure. Because if you do these things, you will never, ever stumble. For in this way, in this way, entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be richly supplied for you. Peter says to believers, if you continue to grow spiritually, you will be assured that you are among God's elect and the entrance to God's kingdom through his son will be abundantly supplied to you. What would I say to you? Keep growing spiritually. Let me conclude with this. Uh, As you know, this past weekend I was ill, Pastor Mike, uh, marvelously at the last minute's notice, although he had his day already booked up, and I called him on Saturday morning, stepped in, and did an awesome job of preaching a sermon. Now, only somebody with that kind of years of experience could do that. If it had been me, we would have been in trouble. 
I'd have been like, hey, let's, uh, let's just read the Bible. Let's read the, let's read the book of, uh, of Romans in its entirety. Amen. <laughs> and that would have been the sermon for last weekend. <laughs> we would have had a public reading. Um, so while I was at home, my wife had confined me to my bedroom, not sure if it was COVID or not, and that's the way my wife uh, helps to protect my children. So she could find me to my bedroom, and it was good because I was running a fever. I had a massive sore throat, and you know, I was feeling a sense of weakness, and so I laid in the bed. And what better to do while you're laying in the bed than watch YouTube? So I, I, I was uh, on YouTube, and I'm, for the most part, I, I, I thought, oh, this is a good time. So I watched some lectures, uh, watched some interviews, watched some ba- debates, all of these dealing with various theological topics. I won't bore you with those. So after a day and a half of watching all these things, I kind of had a taste to see something different. My mind had just absorbed as much information as it could handle. And I was like, I need something a little less, uh, you know, cumbersome upon the mind and heavy. So I, I saw this, uh, this other advertisement on the side for this show that I, that I hadn't seen. I knew about the show. I hadn't watched the show. And it was about, I, I like singing and stuff like that. So they, they had the show with singers and they were dressed up in costumes. And that fascinated me all the more. So I was like, oh, they have these little nice little, uh, you know, succinct things where they put all the stuff together and get rid of all that extra talking and just let the people sing. And, I, and so I was like, oh, well, let me just listen to those. So I started watching a few of those videos. So on one of the competitions, uh, there was this one particular song that uh, one of the guys who was masked, and we didn't know who he was at that time, uh, was singing. And, and, and this song, amongst all the other songs that were sung, really caught my attention. Uh, it was a song that had performed, been performed about a decade ago and was popular uh, about 10 years ago. And it was made known by the star, this singer named Bruno Mars. And the name of the song was Grenade. Grenade. So some of you may be familiar. Now, for those who don't listen to this type of music, let me just kind of summarize it. So music kind of falls into categories. And although you listen to songs, if you listen to enough of them, you kind of realize, oh, this one goes in this category because they're basically saying the same kind of thing. This one kind of falls in that category because they're just saying the same thing with different words into a different tune. But you realize that they're basically all just saying the same kinds of things, and they just kind of fall into these little categories. Well, this, this song falls into the category in which this young man is trying to persuade a young woman to be in a relationship with him. And the way that he's trying to persuade her is to entice her by telling her about his love for her by saying about all the things he's willing to do on her behalf. And so he starts off singing these songs, things like, as he's singing these things like, hey, you know what, girl? I'll catch a grenade for you. Girl, I'll put my hand on a blade for you. Girl, I'm willing to step in front of a train for you. Girl, I'll take a bullet to the brain for you. And as he was singing that, you know what? That sounded pretty good. (laughs) That sounded pretty good. But because now, remember now, I told you I've been watching all this theological discussion for the last day and a half. My, 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 my learning had, would not let me keep it in that just framework. And my mind began to think theologically about what he was singing and the words that he was singing. And the first thing that came to my mind was, is that really true? <laughs> like, I mean, the sound, the song sounds good. It, it sounds like a good intent. But if I took him and put him in that actual situation, would he really stand in front of a train for her? I mean, would he really take a a bullet for her? Would he catch a grenade for her? Like, I mean, would he really do that? Now, you know, as we as men, you know, we we say all that kind of stuff, but then we get married to women and they can't even get us to wash the dishes. So that's a whole nother nother story, right? So so I'm thinking about that and I'm thinking about the realities of life. and, And I started to think to myself, I mean, come on now, brother. But then it didn't stop there because my mind immediately Leap to God. And I started to ask the questions about God. Would God catch a grenade for me? Would God step in front of a train for me? Would God take a bullet for me? And then my mind went back to Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 8, and I said, you know what? I don't have to wonder what God would do because I know what God has done. Jesus got on a cross and died for me. He didn't just tell me that he loved me to when we were sweet nothing. He actually showed me by giving up his life so that I could be saved. 
brothers and sisters, God is for you. And because God is for you, your future and your relationship with God is secure. And that's why I believe that Paul wrote these words at the beginning of Galatians and made this be our prayer and our motive in life. He says, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me in the life I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Brothers and sisters, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God is for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And we are so, so, so thankful for a love that comes from you, that comes from your son Christ, a love of which we do not deserve. It's only by your mercy that we have such a tremendous love. May we live every day from a place of gratefulness, realizing that despite what we might be facing in this life, that your affection for us has not changed. Though life wants to tell us one story because of horrible things that we go through in this life, that has no bearing on your love that you demonstrated in Christ's death and resurrection for us. And so we can have confidence because, as Mike read to us two weeks ago, this plan is going to end in a new creation and a glorified body for us. And so now, Father, we get the opportunity in one way to express our gratitude through giving, to show that we recognize that you are the giver of all good gifts, that the reason that we have life and income and our needs met is because you've been advocating for us. And it is because of your good pleasure that we are where we are in this life. And so now, Lord, we offer gifts back to you to tell you how much we appreciate you and we love you in response to the love you first showed us. Would you bless this offering now for all those who've already given through digital means or those who might give right now in this room? Would you bless them? And even those who might not at this particular point in life have it financially able to give, but the desire is in their heart. And in the future, I ask that you turn around their circumstances so that they may act on that desire that they possess inwardly and be able to honor you in this way. We give you the praise and the honor and the glory in the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen.